1: and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now.
2: This is the Bonfire on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Here it is, the Bonfire. You've chosen the you correct. Right Good for you. You have made the first step in your journey. The success journey. No, seriously though. You've made an excellent choice today because this is a a chock-full episode of entertainment, culture, sports, you know, fun topics, interesting things. And that's what Bonfire is all about. If you want politics, uh, don't come here. If you want to hear about Obama, Hillary, Trump, Cruz, the legislative branch, anything like that, (laughs) no. Don't come here. Stay away. Because that stuff is not welcome here. There's a time and a place for everything. And this time, the place is called success. And I'm going to give a book review here. It is called The Happiness Track. The Happiness Track by Emma Sepela, I believe is how you pronounce her name. You know, Dr. Emma sepela sepala Who knows? S-E-P-P-A-L-A. in the A's have the uh, umlauts above it. So I don't really know how to pronounce that. Surprisingly, as much of a, a grammar Nazi that I am, I am not sure how to pronounce her last name. But that is neither here nor there. Let me read a little bit of the intro here to kind of explain what the book is, and then I'm going to go through the six chapters. This is a nice short book. It's about 100 and let's see, 160 pages. So totally doable to read in a weekend if you're a fast reader. And I thought there were there were a number of points that I enjoyed in this book. And I thought, you know what? I never thought of that. That makes total sense now. And it's technically under the, it says, self-help and success, you know, uh, genres. So if you go to your bookstore, you'll, you'll find it there. And it's a big white book. It's got orange um, lacing, not lacing, but um, design. <laughs> orange and white. Happiness track by Emma Cipela. Here it is. Everyone wants happiness and success, yet the pursuit of both has never been more elusive. As work and personal demands rise, we try to keep up by juggling everything better, moving faster, and doing more. While we might succeed in the short term, this approach comes at a high cost in the long term. It hurts our well-being, our relationships, and paradoxically, our productivity. In this life-changing book, Emma Sopela explains that the reason we are burning ourselves out is that we fall for outdated theories of success. We are taught that getting ahead means doing everything that's thrown at us with razor-sharp focus and iron discipline, that success depends on our drive and our talents, and that achievement cannot happen without stress. The Happiness Track demolishes these counterproductive theories. Drawing on the latest scientific research on happiness, resilience, willpower, compassion, positive stress, creativity, and mindfulness, Sapala demonstrates that being happy is the most productive thing we can do to thrive, whether at home or at work. She shares practical strategies for applying these scientific findings to our daily lives. A fulfilling, successful, and anxiety-free life is within your reach. The Happiness Track will show you the way. Well, that sounds great. You know, we've all heard it before. Push harder, work harder, stress is good, or at least a little bit. Some people are the workaholics. We've talked about that here before. And Bonfire is all about that balance. Yes, you should work hard, but you should play hard too. You should relax. If you go 100 miles an hour all day every day and it's work, you're going to burn yourself out and she says that multiple times throughout the book burning yourself out meaning mentally you're just going you're going to veg people are going to be trying to talk to you at the end of the day and you'll 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 see right through them you won't even be paying attention you are not there in the moment your mind is elsewhere it's either on work or it's on sleep and you're thinking to yourself Ugh, i just want to go home stop talking i just want to go to bed where's the food good night You're going to be a very unpleasant person to be around. And some of the most successful people you see, you're like, oh, it looks like they work 23 hours a day. That must be the the answer to success is to work really hard and do nothing but that. Some people do that. But not everybody, nor should you. You should make the time to relax. Take a deep breath. And she does, (laughs) there's like a little section here in the book about breathing, and it actually kind of helps. That is something that is completely within your control. Deep breaths breathing at all you know in general it's uh, involuntary really because now our bodies have learned to do it by itself but when you mentally think about it and say i'm going to sit here take a deep breath and calm down okay i got this it really does work so section number one chapter one let me find the the quote that stood out the most for me chapter one is stop chasing the future Stop chasing the future. Where is it? That's a good one. Oh, well, there's another good one. There it is. Being present increases your charisma. All right, now this is more for the uh, the business professionals out there. We've all heard that term before. Charisma. You need to have charisma at work. Everybody loves it. Okay. Well, what does that really mean? I mean, charisma would be this this sort of energy that you give off and that people are just like I just love being around him and she's so great to she's inspiring and she's so full of life and positive and happy and productive all that kind of charisma is all kind of wrapped up in just this elation this feeling that you get from being around someone someone that just draws you in and they're very personable and sociable It's great yeah we would all love that even the uh introverts can have charisma okay It's not something you're born with. It's something you learn. And that's something else she mentions here in the book. It's, you know, we all have strengths, but those can be lost and they can be improved. And the things that you think you suck at, you can actually improve at those as well. And she goes through all these examples. Even Einstein, people used to think he was stupid, but he was just a slow learner. Then when he devoted himself to thinking, you know what, I'm going to do this. Boom. There you go. Nobel Prize. So she makes the argument, look, we can all learn to have this mastery of whatever something of something that we choose to do so if you look at it like that then you won't be so depressed all the time and just say well i just suck at this i'm not going to do it anymore no don't do that have a positive attitude so being present increases your charisma she is saying stop chasing the future be in the moment live in the moment the happiest people in the world are the ones that live in the moment the ones that live in the past you know they're depressing they're the ones that, it's cliche, the ones that like, oh, my! High, and back in my high school days, man, those were good days, man. It's, really? Dude, the high school was the best time of your life? It never got better for you? That's, that's sad. That's terrible. Don't live in the past because it is absolutely out of your control. It's over. Move on. Be in the moment because you're living it right now. You're choosing to listen to this podcast as being in the moment, and I thank you for that. (laughs) But when you're done with it, think, all right, what am I going to do now? I'm going to go get me some food. I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to go see my friends or my family. Be in the moment because at any second, you could die. It's kind of a morbid thought, but really, that's just how shallow life is. Anything can change. All of a sudden, you get a promotion, and they're saying, hey, we need you to move out of state. Boom, there go all the friends you just had in that state. Now you have to go make new ones. Life is, change, change is the only consistent thing in life. Okay, so if you're in the moment, you're more likely to be able to kind of bounce back from the negatives and pull yourself back down from the, uh, the highs that you get because you think you're, you're just hot stuff. You know, being present and calm keeps you on your feet, keeps you in the real world. So that was her suggestion in the first chapter. Stop chasing the future, be in the moment. And that's something that I'm trying to uh, learn myself. It's, it's easy to, you know, kind of look, look back on your life and have regrets. Everybody does, but you can't let those eat you up. And it's also easy to look forward to the future and say, you know what? Things are not that good right now. I can't wait for things to get better. It's just a matter of time. Um, I'm not happy right now. I mean, it's also a depressing way to live you don't know what the future is going to hold. It's either going to get worse for you or it's going to be unbelievably great. But every there's every possibility it's out of your control. I would say it's pretty difficult to plan really anything two years out. One year, you're still kind of pushing it. A lot can happen in one year. If you try to plan things out two years in advance, chances are it's not going to go according to plan at all. You can have lofty goals. You can say, hey, by the time I'm 30, I'd love to have a A career, a stable job, and a house. Okay, that's pretty generic. But if you were to say, I want to be this position at this company with this much salary in this house in that neighborhood with that woman, you know, that wife. Okay, you're getting way too specific because that's all out of your control. It really is. A number of things you can kind of influence, but that's something you need to learn, I think. That's something that I'm trying to learn is to go with the flow. Have the goals. Try to aim. Give it your best shot. But if it goes awry, don't lose your mind. Chapter two, step out of overdrive. Here's what she's saying about burning yourself out. Here's what stuck out at me. Quote, what success looks like, of course, is up to you. That stuck with me because we always find ourselves trying to compare Bob to Joe. Samantha to Kathleen. That's just human nature. The grass is always greener. Keeping up with the Joneses. Seeing other people's lives on Facebook and thinking, wow, that looks like a great life. They got their act together. What the hell am I doing? And then you get down on yourself. But success, only you can define it, what it means for you. For some people, it's to work over 100 hours a week on Wall Street and be alone with maybe one or two friends. If some idiot has a dream like that, okay, that's his business. That's not yours. If yours is to have a respectable job that's uh, steady, pays the bills, and then some, you enjoy your coworkers, you have plenty of friends and family all around you, you have weekends off or some portion of the week off where you get to relax and you know share moments with family or sleep in, read a book by yourself, whatever, that is success to a lot of people too. For me, it is to have downtime. To not have my life devoted to work. To have a balance. To have a variety of things to keep myself busy. Play some video games here and there with uh, roommates. Go actually outside and play golf. Go hiking, go swimming, go traveling. Work hard. Eat, sleep. Go to the opera. Go to the symphony. Go to a concert. Sporting event, hockey, basketball, football. All the above. So what success looks like is only up to you. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. What success is for that dude over there may not be the same for you, and that's perfectly okay. So this is meant to help you take a deep breath and not freak out when your friend is making six figures and you're not. Well, what do you have that he doesn't? He may be looking at you and say, Dude, I have all this money, but I'm all alone. I spend it all on myself, and it kind of sucks. I wish I had your friends. Your friends are very supportive, and you spend a lot of time with them, and you all love each other. That's great. I wish I had love. I'm very alone in this world. There are people like that. And that's terrible. That is one of the That's one of the killers of humanity. We're not meant to be lonesome. To be alone. So while you may not have as much cash as the next guy, you may have something that he would kill for, okay? Success is up to you. Managing your energy, chapter 3. Let me see if I can find this bad boy. Oh yeah. So, there is no quote but it's in the chapter here and what she's saying. Emma, Dr. Sepela, says there are highs and lows in your life. And you only have so much energy in your body. So when you wake up in the day, if you are on cloud nine, you're on top of the world, and you're like that all day, you're draining your energy. Yes, you're excited and it's happy and it's fantastic. But at the end of the day, chances are, you're emotionally drained, maybe mentally drained. You'd say, wow, that was a huge ride today. That was great. But now, oh, it's time for bed. That sounds so nice. You know, it's like anything. You have a a big-ass party for yourself. Maybe it's a birthday party, the big uh, 4-0. And you just spent all day with friends and family, lots of gifts and um, food and drinks. And it was just, it started at 7 a.m. And now here it is at 2 a.m. the next day. And you're like, wow, I have not slept this entire time. I've been around everybody I had a fantastic day, this will be with me the rest of my life, but now, wow, I am I am tired. Not not just physically, but mentally. I'm gonna to need to clock out for another day or two just to recover from being at that such an emotionally high state. And then and the opposite of that is the anger. You know, that's the negative side. Anger and stress, that's when you're you know, uh, high intensity emotion as well. But it's a negative one. So if you find yourself angry all day, of course you're going to come home pissed and tired. You're just mentally exhausted. And when your friends and family try to reach out to you, you might be pretty pissed at them. And there's no reason for that. It's just because you're so emotionally drained. You screwed yourself because you're angry all day or you're so excited all day. You have no more energy just to get back to a normal medium. So she lays it out with all these cases and uh, other doctors and writers, authors, Saying, "Yeah, I, I believe that there, there you only have so much energy in your body. Yes, there are extroverts and introverts, but we all still only have a limited supply. And if you're floating on cloud nine or you're pissy, that's going to drain you quickly, and then it might make you worse." So she's saying, "Let's kind of let's go down toward a low intensity. There's nothing wrong with a low intensity, calm and serenity. You know, the uh, negative side of that would be uh, sadness and depression. You don't want that either." have a balance. The balance of when you get excited and you have great days, fantastic, but find ways to calm down and get yourself back to a happy medium. Then on the days you're feeling sad and depressed, find ways to pick yourself up and then get back to that medium. You don't want to be depressed and sad because then not only do people not want to be around you, but it's it's a tragic state to be in. Nobody wants to be depressed and feeling lonely. You actually may not be. You may have all these loved ones around you, but That's what depression does. It makes you feel hopeless, saying, I don't care. It's it's over. That's it. So avoid that at all costs. Managing your energy. I do, I recommend this book. I think she's got most of it in line. Very well said. (laughs) And number four, chapter four, get more done by doing more of nothing. That sounds almost exactly like an article I wrote for bonfirethoughts.com maybe a year ago. And I titled it, The Importance of Doing Nothing. (laughs) So she and I could not agree more. And she says, look, if you are an accountant, don't spend your weekend, you know, doing math on your blackboard at home. Come on, get away from the numbers. Go do something completely different. Go play tennis. Go outside and swim. Sleep in. Eat well. Spice it up. Have some variety. If you are... You know, a jock, sports jock, professional or otherwise, and you spend most of your time doing that, or you're most of the time at the gym, then have a day where you just sit and watch TV for a few hours. Or you go to the bowling alley. Hmm? That'd be fun. Why not? It's not too uh, strenuous, and it can be enjoyable, and you're with your buddies. She's saying to spice it up because. There is evidence to suggest, and I also speak from my personal experience, when I'm looking for an answer, say something work-related, I will go play golf. I will sleep in, make sure I get plenty of rest so my mind is clear. I will sometimes just turn on TV and veg out. I'm not really paying attention. It could be something I've seen dozens of times before, and I'd say I'm not really focusing on what I'm looking at. I'm just kind of almost looking through the TV and just letting my mind wander. And every now and then I tune back into the TV, but then I tune right back out, and my mind is kind of working through whatever problem it may be having. And eventually, after sleeping on it, doing a variety of you know activities, I can say, well, hey, there's the answer. I never even thought of that. It's as clear as day now. So she's saying you can get more done by doing more of nothing. Find time to be idle. And then, of course, find the time to play. And chances are it'll actually help you be more productive with your work. And then that's how you get ahead. You figure out different answers to different, or different solutions, She highly recommends that, and so do I. Chapter 5, enjoy a successful relationship with yourself. Key point here is, uh, we can be very hard on ourselves. She says, research shows that the brain has a negativity bias. You know what? That sounds about right. We live our lives, quote, we live our lives so focused on the negative that we often fail to notice, let alone enjoy what we do have. There's an analysis that says something like 75% of our life may be going well, but we only tend to focus on the 25% negative. Why do we do that? And she goes into saying, you know, maybe it's possible evolution. That's what helped our species survive. You know, it had to focus on the negatives like, hmm, I don't feel safe here. Maybe we should move that kind of stress. But in today's world, it's kind of not necessary. Thank goodness. So why do we focus on the negative so much? Who knows? But it doesn't really matter because it's there. So if you acknowledge it and say, okay, I know my brain today is going to tend to focus on the negatives. Let me find the positives today. Hmm, I got to eat today. Hmm, I actually got to sleep in today. Wow, today went really well at work. Nothing went wrong. And then I went home and I got to watch a movie with my buddy or my girlfriend or my spouse. Great. Those are all the positives of the day, okay? You should be focusing on those things and saying, this is fantastic. Not everybody in the world gets to do what I just did today. Don't be so hard on yourself. When you're hard on yourself, you tend to be unfair. Then when you're unfair with yourself, you'll translate that over to others. You'll be, kind of <laughs> be kind of a jerk. I almost said something else there. <laughs> you'll be kind of a jerk if you're, even a, if you're a jerk to yourself, okay? Lighten up. It's okay. We're human. Mistakes are made. It's not the end of the world. We have a tendency to catastrophize. I think that's the word. That's how you pronounce it. Yeah, it's you saying, oh,
1: worst case scenario. Oh, I'm going to get fired today because I did this.
0: If your boss even noticed. And if the boss did notice, just probably give you a slap on the wrist and say, okay, well, obviously you know what you did was wrong. Don't do it again. Boom. We're done. Moving on. And finally, chapter six. Understand... The Kindness Edge. Now, this is very similar to another book that I read. It's called The Go-Giver. I don't think I did a review on it for Bonfire, but maybe I should. Anyway, The Go-Giver is all about giving. If you want to get the most out of life and be successful and happy, you should give, give, give. Like there's no tomorrow. So here in Chapter 6, she is more or less along those same lines, saying, Look, if you want happiness in your personal life and your work, you should be giving. Don't be looking around thinking, hey, what can I get out of, what what can I get out of this? What's in it for me? Look around and say, Well, how can I help how can I help that guy? What's in his best interest? And that because human beings are social creatures, they're gonna notice those sympathetic qualities in you saying, Wow, he willingly chose to help me. Okay, I kind of feel indebted to him now, I want to help you. You know, most human beings are decent people. And so they'll do something like that. They'll say, hey, Bob helped me today. I'm going to help him tomorrow because I feel like it now. I feel good. Now feel great tomorrow when I get to help him. And then it just goes back and forth. And you start helping everybody. You say it just feels great. Everybody's winning. Everybody's happy. Come on. What's not to like about that? So she's all about compassion and uh, generosity and giving. That's great. Absolutely. Think of others. Put others first is the bottom line. When you do that, everybody wins. Everybody's happy. Everything is good. If only everybody's, everybody did that. Of course, that would be in a perfect world, and we are not in a perfect world. So on that super positive note, we are not in a po- uh, perfect world. <laughs> that is the end of the A Block. Whew. Man, that was an intense one. Almost 22 minutes. But hey, first book review, I don't think it's too bad. I read this thing cover to cover. There's actually a lot in it. So Bonfire recommends it gives you a big old thumbs up, thumbs up from the bonfire for the happiness track by Dr. Emma Sepela. Go ahead and uh, go check it out. I'm sure there are eBooks, you know, in today's day and age, but me, I like to get the real thing. So I have something in my hand to hold while I highlight and flip a real page and then amass, you know, a nice library down the road. I want to have some physical books in my possession, not just a hard drive because if that hard drive burns up, boom, there goes all my stuff. That would suck. So everybody, please stay tuned for, oh, there it is. Nice deep breaths. Everybody, please stay tuned for the B-Block coming up.
2: This is the Bonfire on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800
1: to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. and dryer coverage just call 1-800-686-3910 that's 1-800-686-3910 again 1-800-686-3910 call now
2: this is the bonfire on demand on the blaze radio network here's your host andrew herzog
0: all right here's something that was super interesting to me and something that i just felt like sharing with the world the world that has chosen to tune in, of course. It's from Nat Geo. Found this bad boy on Apple News right on your phone. Here's what happened the day the dinosaurs died. Some pretty interesting facts in here. Or, uh, not facts, um, projections. You know, educated guesses. Hypotheses. It's pretty fun. Imagine sunrise on the last day of the Mesozoic era, 66 million years ago. Shafts of sunlight rake through the swamps and coniferous forests along the coast of what is now Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. The blood warm seas at the Gulf of Mexico teem with life. As this lost world of dinosaurs and outsized insects, squawks and buzzes and whirs to life, an asteroid the size of a mountain is hurtling toward the Earth at about 40,000 miles an hour. (laughs) Jeez. For a few fleeting moments, a fireball that appears far bigger and brighter than the sun streaks through the sky. An instant later... The asteroid slams into the Earth with an explosive yield estimated at over 100 trillion tons of TNT. Damn. The impact penetrates the Earth's crust to a depth of several miles, gouging a crater more than 115 miles across and vaporizing thousands of cubic miles of rock. The event sends off a chain of global catastrophes that wipe out 80% of life on Earth, including most of the dinosaurs. This tale has been described in countless books and magazines ever since the asteroid impact theory was first put forth in 1980. So, how did it all flow, like, from stage to stage? Well, here's what they say. Last month, a team of British scientists working on an offshore drilling platform in the Gulf of Mexico obtained the first-ever core samples from the peak ring of the, I'm assuming, Chicxulub crater. This ring is where the shocked Earth rebounded in the seconds following the impact, and the swelling formed a large circular structure within the crater walls. And here they're going to study that rock and kind of project what they think happened that day. So reliving the catastrophe, here's what they say. Mm. You can plug in different distances from the point of impact to see how the effects change over distance, says Joanna Morgan, one of the lead scientists of the Chicxulub drilling project. If you were close by, say, within 625 miles, you'd be instantaneously, or within a few seconds, killed by the fireball. So there you have it. (coughs) <coughs> hit my excuse me hit by the asteroid if you were 624 miles away you'd be dead you'd be hit by the fireball if you were near enough to see it you were dead says gareth collins a lecturer on planetary silence at the imperial college who helped develop the program nine seconds after impact an observer at that distance would then have been roasted by a blast of thermal radiation hmm That's nice. Trees, grass, and shrubs would have spontaneously burst into flame, and anyone present would have suffered instant third-degree burns over their entire bodies. So, over 600 miles away, and within 10 seconds, you'd be burned to death. Either by the fireball or the thermal radiation. After the fire, now comes the flood. So depending on the local topography, the impact would have kicked up a phenomenal tsunami up to 1,000 feet. Hmm. And at the low end estimate of the (laughs) 10.1, low end estimate of 10.1, the subsequent earthquake would have been more powerful than anything any measured or experienced by human beings. A seismic event of this size would have have been the equivalent of all the world's earthquakes for the past 160 years going off simultaneously, says Rick Astor, professor of seismology at Colorado State University. So there you have it. Minimum impact of 10.1. Yeah, we've never seen anything like that. So, uh, minimum, meaning it could have been a 50.1, who knows? But that is massive, along with the tsunami and the fireball, the impact crater, the thermal radiation. Oh yeah, and this too. At just over eight minutes after impact, ejecta would start to spill down, smothering the burning landscapes beneath a blanket of hot grit and ash. Closer to the impact zone, the ground would have been buried beneath hundreds or even thousands of feet of rubble. And then 45 minutes later, a blast of wind would tear through the region at 600 miles an hour, scattering debris and leveling anything that might still be standing. The sound of the explosion would arrive at the same time, a 105 decibel roar, that's about as deafening as a jet, making a low-pass flyover. So there you have it. If you were to kind of be there back in the day, you would have been burned, alive, first. You would have been buried under thousands of feet of rubble thrown across the continent by a tsunami over a 1,000 feet high, burned by the thermal radiation, third-degree burns, not just, you know, literally a fireball, but the thermal radiation would also burn you, and then about 45 minutes later, you'd be just knocked over by the blast of wind going 600 miles an hour. So it doesn't sound like a very good day. You'd be pretty screwed. Further afield, out of range of the direct effects of the explosion, an observer would be treated to the spectacle of darkening skies and an apocalyptic... Apocalyptic display of shooting stars created by the impact debris raining back down on Earth. So it hits. Pieces of the Earth go flying back up in the air. And then they come flying back down as little meteorites. That's nice. They wouldn't have looked quite like regular shooting stars or meteors, says Collins. Meteors burn up at higher speeds and get hotter. These would have been re-entering the atmosphere at lower altitudes, traveling slower and emitting infrared radiation. I'm not entirely sure what that would look like. Some sort of red glow would be my guess. After the red glow, the sky would darken as ash and debris swirling around the globe, creating a creeping twilight. For the first few hours, there would have been close to total darkness, but soon after that, the sky would begin to lighten. The following weeks, months perhaps, even years, were probably somewhere between twilight and a very cloudy day. The prevailing dimness caused by the dust cloud meant photosynthesis would have been dramatically reduced. The soot and ash would have taken months to wash out of the atmosphere, and when it did, the rain would have fallen as acidic mud. Massive fires would have produced huge amounts of toxins that temporarily destroyed the planet's protective ozone layer. There you go. In effect, the aftermath of the asteroid was probably a powerful one-two punch of nuclear winter, followed by dramatic global warming. And that's where the core samples freshly pulled from the Chicxulub crater can help fill in the gaps. In this infamous story. So there. From National Geographic. What it must have been like... 66 million years ago? Yes. 66 million years ago. Not only wrapping that number around your mind... But imagining... An asteroid... Crashing into Earth. With all these different effects. A one-two punch, as it said. First the initial impact. And then of course all the consequences of that impact. So... That would have been a very bad day to be on Earth back then. And on that positive note, we'll
1: be right back.
2: The Bonfire, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Don't miss Pat and Stew. Is it Chicago's O'Hare? They're telling you to be there three hours ahead of time? And, and we've, uh, Yes. We've, they've already come out. I mean, TSA has come out and said how they're, they're trying to streamline it. American Airlines said today they're going to they're start add, helping them out. They're giving like $4 million to private stuff to help the TSA out to ease the lines. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: The Bonfire. Here's your host, Andrew
0: Versad. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Bonfire podcast, here to talk about the important issues of the day, you know, the important topics, the things that everybody is really talking about, not the politics, not the, you know, deep-seated, depressing issues of the day. We're here to talk about LeBron James. And I have with me here a coworker who, last week, when I mentioned that I was not a huge fan of LeBron, he took issue with that. But he did so in a way that actually started convincing me otherwise. So I decided to have him on today to say, Alex, why don't you... Tell the folks what you told me last week, ladies and gentlemen. Here is Alex. What is your what is your technical
3: title here at the Blaze? Um, I am design lead for Mercury Radio Arts.
0: Nice. Okay. So he's a very he's a designer kind of guy and very artistic, but he's also a big sports fan, particularly a big Cavs fan. Yes, so, sir. so okay. About a year ago, I first said LeBron. I'm not a huge fan because you flop all the time, and to me, that gives me sort of a window into your soul. I think what. What is the motivation for doing something like that? You know, you're know, you a big, talented basketball player. Why do you feel the need to just go completely overboard when someone taps you on the shoulder? And I took a big issue with that. And I take that issue with soccer players, other basketball players. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't like to see that. Just play the game as clean as you can, and if you come out on top, then you're just a better person, in my eyes. So when I mentioned that the other day, Alex said, well, here, wait a minute, let me present you with a couple pointers and then see how you feel about it, Andrew. So Alex, go ahead. Tell me what you told me last week.
3: Well, I just want to start this out by saying that I'm not just a LeBron James fan. Okay. That I am from Cleveland, Ohio, um, from Akron, grew up 10 minutes from where LeBron grew up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm a Cleveland fan first, and I was not a LeBron fan at all when he played in Miami. There's still a huge part of me that dislikes everything he did mm. uh, when he decided to go to South Beach um, I thought that was the wrong move and I still like constantly I fight that in my head like mm. there's still a part of me that does not like him Right. Um, but on the issue of flopping and I do hear this a lot from a lot of people Um, LeBron is 260 pounds he's an unmovable force he's like solid steel Mm -hmm. so when you hit this guy it's like he doesn't move he doesn't flinch doesn't feel it um and he drives to the basket he gets hit every single time and he gets less calls than anybody that i know of in the league certainly he doesn't get superstar calls Uh, i mean he's got to be hit pretty hard for a ref to blow the whistle for him which is sad, and I think it's because of how big he is. Now, he started flopping a few years ago and realizes that, hey, if I you know, bring some drama into this and act like I was hit, then it looks worse than what it is, and I actually get a call because I actually am, I, I am being fouled, but if mm. I don't flop, I'm not going to get that whistle. So he starts doing that, and then realizes it's working, well, he can't stop now because then he's not getting any calls again. So he shot himself in the foot by trying it because now he's got to keep it going. And uh, still, honestly, I mean, well, A, he's not really that good at flopping. Hmm. It, it looks bad. Oh, yeah. Um, And it really doesn't work. He still doesn't get any calls. And honestly, I don't see how a ref is missing something like that when I can see a foul call through my television screen. But, you know, I I just don't think he, he can stop flopping now because then he gets even less calls.
0: So do you think that, that that justifies it? That because he's so big and if it won't, let's say he's drilling toward the basket. If someone were to slap him on the arm, you know, they're going for the ball. Or hell, they just slap him on the arm because they want to foul him. If yep. he's such a big dude and it won't really affect his play because he'll just keep going, well then that's... Beyond the spirit of the rule, the rule is to say it's a foul when it's, you know, going to hit their arm and it's going to screw up their shot. Therefore, they're going to get two shots um, as a you know as a penalty. Well, if he's so big and it's not going to affect him anyway, why should he be so concerned about the penalty? Because he can just plow through them and say, yeah, I got hit, but it didn't affect my
3: play because I still got it to the basket or something. It's well, a foul call isn't made because of the size of somebody. I mean, it's it's contact. It's called on contact. And a lot of times a referee will make a call due to a reaction of a player. And, I I mean, a referee is human. Mm -hmm. When things are going at full speed, it's very hard to determine what should and shouldn't be called. And a lot of times smaller players will get more calls because everything looks worse. Um, So you do have somewhat of a point. But even though it's not going to alter... A shot from LeBron, which it does and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, still, contact is a foul, and I mean, you want the extra free throw. You want the in- right. one. True points are points.
0: That's true. And when it comes to the NBA Finals, as what they are in right now, every point counts. Right. And uh, at the time of this recording, they have one more game possibly because they, the Golden State, may have run away with it tonight. It'll yep. be on a Monday night. They still have a few chances left to pull it off, so we'll see if LeBron can do that and pull the team together, because is this his second year now at the Cavs? It should be, right? Or is it his third? Okay, second. Second. All right. Now, I also mentioned about a year ago, I just don't like his attitude. He seems too braggadocious or too much of a baby when he loses. Now, of course, it's, it's big stakes. You know, if it's a professional basketball game, if you lose, of course, you have... I think every right to kind of be a baby. You'd say, look, I lost either X amount of money or this is going to affect my career. I missed the opportunity for another championship, which I could have added to my resume. It's understandable. Right. But you see other players in other sports that lose gracefully. You know, they may, they don't pout or give short answers in press conferences. And I feel. LeBron has done that. I may be completely ignorant, so...
3: I think LeBron gets singled out a lot because he's LeBron James, and his press conferences are everywhere. He's not the only one that uh, would act like that in a loss, and I think he has done that from time to time. Mm -hmm. It's not a... I mean, I would hardly say it's a consistent thing across the board every time he loses in the playoffs. Um, I mean, he's been honestly i've been upset with lebron this year for how he has handled press conferences and losses Hmm. you know he just kind of shrugs it off of yeah it's just one loss it's you know we'll come back and get him next game and me as a fan i want to see him pissed off you know i want to see him upset um because part of me feels like he could be giving more effort in these games Hmm. like i've taken issue with lebron many times and here's one argument that I think you could have of why you don't like LeBron is he seems to crumble under big-time pressure. And is it you know the hometown pressure of being from Akron, Ohio? It could be. I mean, the guy is human. Um, And who could blame him, honestly? I mean, the pressure is unbearable. But Mm -hmm. he calls himself King James. He's the chosen one. (laughs) Like, he's supposed to be bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to say you're bigger than that, He's got to be bigger than that. And in big games, especially in a Cleveland uniform, I've seen him not give the effort that I know he can give. Not play with the type of intensity that wins you championships. The type of intensity that he played with in Miami. And, you know, I've always said that this Cavs team this year is as talented as any team in the league, but... These guys were built to play around an intense LeBron James. And when LeBron James isn't playing engaged and is not playing with intensity, the rest of the team doesn't know how to act. They don't
0: make shots. Why do you think he is playing as intensely Uh, as he has
3: before? I don't know. And Hmm. that's been something that has bugged me. I've tried to think of it and, you know... Every way I can, and the only thing that I can think is it's got to be the bright lights, the pressure. It's the Cleveland pressure. I, I don't yeah. know of any other way to explain
0: it. Right. The hometown, the uh, the NBA finals, the moments of like, okay, uh, you don't want to choke. It's right. understandable. Right. I mean, Huge stakes.
3: everybody says he can't win in Cleveland. Hmm. And, you know, in Miami, there's just – there's pressure – I mean, especially with you know the big three and the the Heatles and all that you know, not six, not seven, not eight, all that crap. Um, but still, there's not that hometown pressure, the Cleveland curse. There's none of that. And let me tell you, I mean, just I just moved to Dallas eight months ago. I mean, the pressure there on that guy is unreal. And you said so, yeah, on the court tremendous pressure and he's possibly
0: buckling under it but i wasn't aware and that's because i didn't do my research you know believe it or not
3: Hmm.
0: he he does a lot of good for his hometown correct like off the court a lot of charities that's what you told me absolutely what does he do
3: absolutely um off the court lebron is a great guy and he does a lot of stuff that just it doesn't make national news Hmm. he loves akron ohio um especially the kids i mean He has a -a bike-a-thon every year to raise money for the inner-city kids in Akron. Uh, Usually donates uh, over 400 bikes to kids in attendance there. Um, One of the biggest things he just recently did was he pledged over $41 million um, and partnered with the University of Akron, my alma mater goes um, Zips, to put kids all the way through college, a full four-year scholarship. Um, and he's planning on doing this for like 2000 kids. Jeez. Um, and these kids, uh, he has a third grade mentoring program and, you know, his foundation's research shows that third grade is like that crucial year that, you know, will show if the kid is going to make it all the way through or the kid's going to drop out. Mm -hmm. Um, third grade is where you start to see a lot of dip in like reading comprehension levels and math levels and all that stuff so he focuses on the third grade level and he has this mentoring program where uh you know you have to keep up a certain grade point average and Mm -hmm. you have to have a certain attendance record and all this stuff to get these rewards from his program and he'll write letters to the kids he'll record videos for the kids and you know the the kids that are able to complete this uh program throughout their Entire you know elementary school, middle school, uh, high school. You know if they're able to complete all this, then you know, they get the full ride scholarship to the University of Akron.
0: I like that because it's not a giveaway. It's you got to work for it. Here are the rules. If you do it, good for you. I'm right. here to help. Absolutely. I like that. Okay. You know, so that's what began to change my mind about LeBron. I now look at him at a, a, in a much less you know critical light I'm willing to say okay it's absolutely possible there's just a whole lot I don't know about him but the few things I do know okay I like it I like what you do off the court and totally understandable that when you're on the court it's easy for us you know to be third-party objective people or trying to be objective and looking down and saying oh come on LeBron you can do better and what is this attitude it's we don't play. We're not in the spotlight. We're not under that pressure, so it's easy for us to and, criticize. So yeah. I'm willing to kind of loosen up and say, "Okay, calm down." But you
3: know that um, we as humans, we love to see people fail, and yeah. that's the stuff that is always out there in the national news. It's mm-hmm. especially you know on ESPN. I'm always flipping on there, and they're like talking about LeBron flopping or LeBron does this or mm-hmm. LeBron does that. It's it's always you know, negative stuff. Yeah. Maybe it's really getting to him.
0: Yeah. I mean, is there, is there so much negative coverage of Steph Curry? Because I feel like there's not, no, there is not. Right. So that's why I seem to have a positive image of him based off of the few things I've seen. But then when I brought that up to you, you brought up what I thought I knew about LeBron. So yeah, what is Steph's problem?
3: Well, I'm just going to be honest. My main problem with Steph Curry is that I'm a Cleveland Cavaliers fan Mm -hmm. and I hate what he's done to us. (laughs) Um, But, you know, he's perceived by everybody to be, you know, this Mm ultra-Christian, awesome guy. And he's got a great family, and I'm sure he's a great guy. Um, But I have noticed a change in his humility over the years. Mm. He's not the same quiet, humble kid that he once was. And now that he has a lot of success— I mean, you can tell this success has gone to this dude's head. Um, You can tell just by the way he conducts himself in interviews, conducts himself off the floor, that he's not the same humble person that he once was. And people always say, oh, LeBron's not humble either. I've never claimed LeBron to be humble. He Mm -hmm. calls himself King James and the Chosen One. There's probably not a humble bone in the guy's body. (laughs) So it's not like he's claiming to be... I'm not saying that he is something he's not. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry, on the other hand, with all the positive coverage and he's the Jesus man and, you know, all that stuff. Like, I don't know. To me, Tim Tebow, walked the walk and talked the talk. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry, you know, something's going wrong on the floor or even when he's celebrating. You know, I can see him yelling the F word out there saying things that I wouldn't want my kids to say. And you got people here. I mean, there's. Co-workers here in this building that don't really watch basketball, but you know they like Steph because they see what he stands Mm -hmm. for and who he's about, and they're like, "Oh, you know, Steph is such a great guy. He's such a great role model." Blah blah blah. I've kind of fallen into that. You know, if if my kid's watching the games, Mm -hmm. I don't want my kid conducting himself like that. Mm -hmm. You want to try to have
0: some self-control on the court. You know, if you're playing well, then be humble about it. If you're losing, then keep your cool. It's, it seems like the NBA, certainly the spotlight, is changing LeBron and Steph, you know, both in kind of different ways. Maybe LeBron is getting a little more pressure and kind of cowering. Not cowering. He's uh, crumbling. And then someone like Steph thinks he's you know, just all that. And then he's in the spotlight. And he's like, well, which, I can do this. And you're like, mm, calm down. Calm down. You're, you're yeah. just getting started with your career. You could tank for the rest of your life. You have no idea. So calm down. It's yeah. totally possible.
3: I mean, Steph is doing a great job of backing up. All of his cockiness. Like, he's (laughs) incredible. Probably Mm -hmm. the greatest shooter to ever play the game. I mean, every time I watch him, it's unreal. Mm -hmm. But I don't like the guy. And there's nothing he can do that would make me like him unless he starts playing terrible and the Cavs somehow pull off a miracle. Then maybe I'll kind of like the guy. But what if the
0: Cavs pulled it off and Steph started to kind of watch? himself a little more a little bit more self-control would your opinion kind of sway a little bit and you say okay maybe he's growing up maybe i'm also not so sore maybe possibly possibly, yeah. possibly mm. but
3: i'm the biggest cleveland homer in any sport so i mm. do not like any player that doesn't have cleveland written across the chest fair enough if he played for the cavaliers <laughs> i'm sure i would love everything he does
0: yeah sounds about right if uh, he was playing for the mavs i'd be saying the same thing i'd say yep he's my man <laughs> yeah fair enough all right. Well, Alex, thank you very much for joining on the bonfire to talk about the important issues, of the sports. And uh, I'm very – I'm actually pretty ignorant of sports. I love watching it, but I don't know lots of, you know, intimate details. My job during the day is politics, so I know all that kind of stuff, and that's why I don't talk about it here. I like to kind of freshen it up and say, let's talk about something a little more entertaining, a little more enjoyable. And then this is where I have the guests on to kind of, you know, supplement these uh, interesting discussions so alex thank you very much for coming on
1: thanks for having me
2: the bonfire only on the blaze radio network
1: don't miss the morning blaze with doc and skip nancy pelosi just officially announced that she is endorsing Hillary Clinton for president. Last night, the AP was reporting that Hillary Clinton has officially reached the number of delegates to secure the nomination. The only way this could be worse is if on Inauguration Day... Yep, Hillary's my... She's the one. That's my horse in this race. She's the one. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: This is the Bonfire On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Here's your host, Andrew Herzog. Welcome back, everybody, to the final block
0: of the bonfire, where we're here to talk about the 2016 election. Donald Trump really has this habit of, you know what? You know what? Let's not get into that. Let's not get into that today. Sorry. Not here. Not now. Not ever, really. So, hmm. that was just for my amusement, because politics, who cares? Who cares? At least when it comes to the bonfire. There's a time and a place for everything, so don't bring your politics here, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for tuning in this week for listening to you know the sports talk, LeBron James, asteroids destroying the Earth, and all the dinosaurs, and uh, you know the mo- uh, book review, the happiness tracked by Dr. Emma Seipelow. That's, that's a that's a pretty good variety. You know, reading a book, a little interesting topic from Nat Geo, a little bit of history, a little bit of science, and you know just a, a good sports talk, the important issues. Like I said. That is what Bonfire is all about. Be sure to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. That is where you can find us on the podcast. Then, of course, the main website, bonfirethoughts.com. And, naturally, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are all over the interwebs. That is what the kids say nowadays, the interwebs. And we are all over it. All over the news. This is Andrew Herzog, out.
2: This is the Bonfire, on demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.